Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk all things MMA. And Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, everybody. 2020 has finally ended. And in the beginning with all the pandemic going on, everybody thought that the year was not going to be great for the UFC. It was not going to be great across all combat sports in general. Boxing did pretty well as soon as they started to follow suit what the UFC was doing. UFC had one of the best years it's ever had. And now we have celebrity fights that have become a normal thing. 2020 kept the trend of being weird, but fun, entertaining, and some of the most unexpected results we never would have thought of back in 2019. For an example, look at some of the divisions in 2020. Look at the bantamweight division. Look at the light heavyweight division. Look at the flyweight division. If you would have asked me back in 2019 if these divisions would have looked like how they look now, with the champions they have now, I would have never have believed you. Maybe Davis and Figueredo, maybe Petro Jan, but I thought Henry Suda would not have retired. That was a shocking thing in 2020. Prime of his career and just calls it quits at the top, which is absolutely amazing for him. It's amazing when fighters know when to retire and know when to walk away from the sport, even though he's kind of, you know, talking about certain fighters and he's still involving himself with every single big fighter around his divisions and even Conor McGregor sometimes. He established himself as one of the greatest of all time. Now we have Petriana as champion. We have Aljamain Sterling and Corey Sandhagen as the two top guys in that division. Cody Garber has somewhat replenished himself. Now he's a number three contender. Frankie Edgar's in the division, and he's one of the top contenders. Rob Font's one of the top contenders. And Joel Zialdo is in the bantamweight division, number six at the moment. And Marlon Moraes is having some sort of decline. Nobody thought that this would have happened in this bantamweight division. A few of those guys, maybe Sandhagen and Sterling, you would have thought would have been top contenders. But everything else that's happened, a lot of people would have not predicted this. Davidson Figueroa being champion, I thought he probably would have became champion at some point, especially with Cejudo and DJ out of the division, but the way he destroyed Joseph Benavidez goes down as one of the most vicious beatdowns in MMA history. I mean, if you go back and watch that, it looks like a fight you would see in the deep web or something like that, you know what I'm saying? Nobody thought Brandon Moreno would be what he is today, and we look at the light heavyweight division, nothing makes sense there. <laughs> Nothing makes sense here. Jan Blachowicz is champion. Nobody would have said that in 2019. Glover Teixeira is the established number one contender. Nobody thought that would have happened. Dominic Reyes loses, gets knocked out by Jan Blachowicz. And you have Yuri Prochaska knocking out Volkan Ustamir. Anthony Smith has fallen down a bit. John Jones is going up to heavyweight, finally, after years of that talk. Malcolm Ankalaev has reinvented himself somewhat after that devastating loss to Paul Craig. And Adesanya is coming up to light heavyweight as well. Habib retiring is not the most shocking thing. I think a lot of people knew that he would eventually retire pretty soon, either this year or next year. I predict that he would have retired next year after fighting maybe GSP or something like that. But what was some unexpected stuff that happened in this lightweight division? Charles Oliveira doing very well. He should be the number one contender in this division. Everybody knew he was really good. I've been talking about Charles Oliveira for a pretty long time, but I did not think he would accomplish what he has accomplished already. I did not think he would be Tony Ferguson. So he dominated Tony Ferguson, and that is the biggest change of the lightweight division, Tony Ferguson's downfall. His fall from grace is not the worst I've seen. I mean, we witnessed Johnny Hendricks, and we witnessed Hanan Barrao, who had far worse downfalls than Tony Ferguson. But Tony was deemed to be greater than those two, right? He was supposed to be the greatest lightweight of all time, tied with Habib. You know, they were the two top guys. Tony was on this unprecedented win streak in this division. He was screwed over so many times. All the fans had his back because he was the guy that was getting beat down by the machine, but then also helping it at the same time. He would get screwed over for title shots. The organization would jump fighters ahead of him for title shots, but then still he would try to save pay-per-view cards like he did for the first pay-per-view of this year during the pandemic. He stuck it with Dustin Poirier, but then his opponent eventually passed him up. And he still played it 
to fight the other contenders of the division. He didn't need to fight Charles Oliveira. He didn't need to fight Justin Gaethje. He didn't need to talk about fighting Michael Chandler. But he did all of this either way. And he still was getting screwed over at the end. And now he loses two in a row and gets dominated in both fights. Seems like he cannot hang with some of the top guys of this division anymore. 37 years old as well. He could never overlook that. The damage he had to go through against Justin Gaethje. And, and not to mention all the wars he's been in through his career. Nobody comes out of those fights unscathed. And that's what Habib said about Tony Ferguson. Especially about the Gaethje fight which was the worst of all. Habib said Tony was not going to be the same fighter after that beatdown of Justin Gaethje. And it seems to be true at least somewhat he did not fight the same against Charles Oliveira he was not the same kind of Tony Ferguson who was extremely aggressive extremely pressuring throwing things out there didn't care what the opponent was trying to do he just wanted to impose his own will on his opponent and bring him to deep water he didn't necessarily do that but that is some credit to Oliveira and what he was able to do in that fight. A lot of people don't give credit to Oliveira for putting the traps he did in the fight. And look at the counter the way he did. It made Tony Ferguson a little bit more tentative in the fight, but not to the point of how he was fighting. The way he displayed his style that night was a little bit different than the usual Tony Ferguson. So man, 2020 was a weird year, man. It was so fun. It was so amazing. I'm glad the UFC went through it. I'm glad Dana White marched through all the heat, all the criticisms, the coronavirus itself. I mean, he battled everything and he was able to put out the product and and amazing quality. I mean, he was the only guy doing it. He was the only guy of any major sport to be able to do this. And because of him, a lot of other sports follow suit and they actually copy the things that he was doing. That's crazy to think about. I don't know about the NBA, NFL, or any other sports organization, but it seemed like the NBA copied a bit of what Dana White did in order to continue the organization and the sport, and boxing seemed to have followed suit as well. In the video he put out on Twitter that became a bit viral, if you don't look at the context, if you don't take a deep dive into how credited a lot of those criticisms were and what those journalists were really talking about, if you don't take a deep dive into all that, you do feel good as a fan that Dana White was able to go through all this even though there were a lot of people who were saying a lot of vile things about him and the organization and how they're going to doom humanity and stuff like this, that's how they made it seem to be a bit of fear-mongering. You did feel good as a fan and proud of Dana White that he was able to do this. But when you do take that deep dive and look at what some of the journalists were saying, a bit of it was taken out of context. And credit to Luke Thomas, man. He pulled out all the receipts, all the evidence, and showed everybody of what every single journalist was actually saying. Some of the video was true what some of those journalists were saying was not good it was a bit of fear-mongering it was a bit of virtue signaling and all that stuff but some of it was definitely taken out of context and that needs to be noted because some of those journalists who didn't really say anything bad about this whole coronavirus and ufc thing it does unfairly discredit them now the next thing is going to come up are the mma awards i'm going to do my own i'm going to do the weasel awards i can have you guys vote on what you guys think you know the fight of the year the fighter of the year the breakout performance of the year the breakout fighter of the year so many things you know you guys can vote on and all that or I could just do it with my own opinion or we could do both what the weasel thinks and what the fans think I believe we might have a bit of alignment there and that's gonna be really fun and there's gonna be a lot more categories that that the usual MMA awards don't dive into a bit I think some of them are pretty obvious though right for example the fighter of the year I think everybody knows who the fighter of the year is right and the knockout of the year and probably even the submission of the year I think those are a bit obvious on who they are for example I do believe Davidson Figueredo is the fighter of the year nobody would have thought that in 2019 and knockout of the year has to be Joaquin Buckley knocking out Impa and submission of the year would probably have to be Habib submitting Justin Gaethje that mounted triangle was insane man the way he was able to set that all up Justin Gaethje giving up his back which I did predict would happen if you did watch my breakdown of how Justin Gaethje wrestles always gives up his back all the time but Habib was able to sneak his way around so quickly and then eventually get into mount and get that triangle choke it was such a smooth transition only a master like Habib could pull that off so seamlessly 
And I do think Breakout Fighter of the Year was stolen by Kevin Holland. It was supposed to be Hamza Shemaev, but you know, his fight with Leon Edwards had to be postponed. Damian Maia didn't want to take the fight or whatever happened there. Steven Thompson didn't want to take the fight. Nobody wanted to take that fight against him. He was, I would think, the second most dodged fighter of the year. I think first might have been Ryan Hall, unless I'm thinking of 2019 as well when I count Ryan Hall. But because he didn't have the fights that were supposed to happen or planned to happen, Kevin Holland had five wins in a row. Devastating knockouts against Joaquin Buckley and Jacare Souza. I mean, who would have thought Kevin Holland would have the year that he did? Five wins in a row, which ties with the record. And mind you, his first win starting this streak was in May. May 16th. That's the fifth month of the year. So for like two-thirds of the year, he was able to fight five times and get victories in all of them, finishes in most of them. You have not thought that in 2019. When you look at his last fight that happened in 2019 against Brandon Allen, he, he lost due to submission. And then in 2018, he got absolutely destroyed by Tiago Santos. Who would have thought Kevin Holland would be one of the top prospects, the breakthrough fighter, and one of the top contenders of the middleweight division in 2020? Looking to break records too. He actually looked to fight last week against Hamza Shemaev, but I guarantee we all know the UFC would not let that happen. They want to keep that Leon Edwards fight. Hamza Shemaev is a cash cow. He's a, he's a star waiting to burst. And frankly, he's such a special fighter. We've never seen someone able to gather so much attention in such little time. He's only 26 years old. He was 6-0 professionally when he came into the UFC. He had that first one against John Phillips. Everybody was talking about, oh, he's like the next Habib. He has this wrestling style like Habib. He's so dominant. So he has some attention. A lot of the hardcore fans are getting behind him. He was undefeated, young guy, fights really well. Seemed to be something the hardcore fans would get behind. Then he comes back a week later and defeats Reese McKee in another division. He cuts weight to 170, different than the 185 fight that he had a week prior. And then he goes and does the same thing to Reese McKee. And then his star power just skyrocketed. Like, he went from, hardcore fans know this guy pretty well, you know, he seems to be someone that could be pretty promising in the future, to a week later, being one of the biggest stars in the sport. Two fights, and that happened. Then he goes on to fight Gerald Mearshar, who everybody was saying, it's not gonna be an easy fight, man, especially on the feet. Gerald Mearshar is a far better striker, he's bigger, he's a good grappler. Hamza Shemai might have a bit of a problem with such a veteran. Starches him with one punch, 17 seconds in the first round. Doesn't even grapple with the guy. Beats him in Gerald's own game. Beats him where he was supposed to lose the fight. And he does it with one punch. It even came to a point where, where Dana White was giving Hamzat the Conor McGregor treatment where he was like taking him all over the place. You've seen them everywhere together. So they're definitely not going to risk Hamza Shemaev's star potential here. They're not going to have him fight Kevin Holland on short notice like that. Even though he could win the fight, it could be a difficult fight for him, most likely. And ultimately, if he beats Kevin Holland, it doesn't jump him up in the rankings like it will if he beats Leon Edwards. But we are now getting word that the UK is having some sort of big lockdown, and there's not going to be any kind of travel happening to or from the UK. Leon Edwards is from there. I don't know if he's there currently, but if he is there, I don't know if we're going to be able to see this fight. They have to have some kind of backup. They have to have some kind of second plan for Hamza Shemaev because they cannot keep pushing back his fight, especially if that lockdown is going to happen and Leon Edwards cannot even come to the United States for some time. But most likely the UFC knows that this can happen and they're coming up with something for Hamza Shemaev just in case. And then talk about those celebrity fights. Jake Paul and also credit to Mike Tyson as well for actually putting on the event and making it such a big mainstream spectacle. But because of Jake Paul's knockout over the basketball player Nate Robinson, he's been calling out MMA fighters, boxers, and they have been calling him out as well. Professional fighters are calling out Jake Paul for a fight. And 
I think a lot of credit has to also go to Floyd Mayweather's announcement that he's going to fight Jake Paul's brother, Logan Paul. So now all the fighters understand that there is money to be made to fight these Paul brothers. Because if Floyd Mayweather notices that he can make a big buck fighting these guys, other professional fighters are going to know that as well. Jake Paul, Logan Paul are going to be easy fights. Professional fighters can literally treat this as a sparring session for their training camp. Like, that's literally what they could treat this as. Let's say, for an example, Conor McGregor actually fights Jake Paul, right? He actually takes up the offer. And let's say he has another fight, we'll say Charles Oliveira, lined up afterward, right? He's going to fight Charles Oliveira for the vacant title, hypothetically. He could take this Jake Paul fight in the meantime. Like, he could take it a couple weeks before fighting Charles Oliveira, treat it as a light sparring session, move around in there, maybe knock him out whatever he wants, and then, you know, get out of there, make how much money? $30 million? Fight Charles Oliveira, make another $30 million? It's such an upside for fighters to take this if they're not taking it as seriously and just looking at it to make a big buck and then they move on right afterward without talking about it ever again. But it does hurt a bit of the credit of the sport when you do see professional fighters calling out Jake Paul, like, like them calling him out instead of him calling them out. It does feel a little bit weird because you don't want to see the sport go into that direction. You don't want to see that be a normal thing. And I'm glad Dana White shut this down a bit. He said Conor McGregor is not going to fight Jake Paul. He's not going to do stuff like that. He said if Jake Paul wants to fight, he could fight Amanda Nunes. Okay, that I'm down with. If you have a disadvantaged narrative going into it, such as, you know, the female fighter Amanda Nunes fights the bigger, athletic, young man Jake Paul, that's something a lot of people can get behind. But if you're talking about, like, Conor McGregor fight Jake Paul, I mean, that's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit weird. Or, you know, Israel Adesanya fight Jake Paul. You could bring out retired fighters like Michael Bisping. That's fine because they he doesn't impact the sport that much. Ben Askren could fight him. Dylan Dennis may fight him. If it seems a bit competitive because it is a boxing match and you have these MMA fighters who are not the best boxers go into this, then you could play with it a bit. Bringing in Conor McGregor or Israel Adesanya or something would be insane. I mean, there's a reason why Jake Paul turned down Yoel Romero. Right, Romero wanted to fight him, which was a bit weird. And I'm actually glad that Jake Paul turned that down. He knew the risk was not worth the reward. It's a weird time. Very weird time. We used to have celebrity fights back in the day, but... It seems with the whole social media influence that this can be more of a normal thing. I hope we don't see actors coming out and challenging fighters. I hope we don't see all that stuff happening. You know, imagine Justin Bieber coming in there and fighting Chase Hooper or whatever fighter. That would be a very weird time. In other news, Anthony Pettis has left the UFC. He's testing free agency and he has now signed with the PFL. He says that the contract was very fair. When you hear a fighter say very fair, that means they're getting paid. And he's going into the tournament for the lightweight division, where he can win a million dollars. Then he's going to go into the welterweight tournament after that, where he can potentially win another million dollars. I'm very happy for Anthony Pettis. It's clear that he's not one of the top guys in the UFC, but in the PFL, he could probably win a lot of fights and get paid beyond belief. He can make more disclosed pay in the PFL in one year than his entire nine years in the UFC. He's been in the UFC for nine years. In one year, he could potentially, not necessarily, but he could potentially make more money in that one year than he did his entire time in the UFC. Think about that. How could he do this? Well, the thing about the PFL is they always hold tournaments for each division. Each tournament winner gets a million dollars. He likes to compete at 155 and 170. If he can find a way to fight in both the welterweight and lightweight tournaments, that automatically makes him $2 million. Then you have to count also the individual fight purses, which is going to be a hefty amount. And also he gets his own sponsors. Now listen, I'm actually very interested. Let's crunch the numbers here. So in disclosed pay, Anthony Pettis made roughly around $3 million, like $3,300,000 in the UFC alone. His entire nine-year run. That is without pay-per-view. That is without sponsors. 
So if Pettis goes and wins the welterweight and lightweight tournament somehow, he doesn't get injured, that's an automatic $2 million, and then plus the added on purse. Now we do know, in Anthony Pettis' last fight, he was getting $165,000 to show and $165,000 to win. Logically speaking, because he signed to the PFL, he's probably going to get more money to show and win. For argument's sake, let's say $200,000 to show and $200,000 to win, which will give him $400,000 each time he wins. This isn't the most probable, but let's say he fights four times that year. Right, he competes in both tournaments, and he wins both of them. Just off win and show money, he made over a million dollars just winning his fights in that one year. He made about a million and two hundred thousand dollars. This isn't counting any kind of bonuses if they have any. This isn't counting any sponsorship. And then add on the two million dollars from the tournaments. About the same money he made in nine years in the UFC. Just winning undisclosed pay. That's it. Which is shocking. That's absolutely insane. If you include pay-per-view points from the UFC and you include his sponsorship money from when he was the champion in the UFC, he most likely made more money, obviously speaking. He had two pay-per-view cards where he headlined as the champion. One of them did 400,000 pay-per-view buys when he fought Gilbert Melendez. And the other one is where he lost to Hava Dos Anjos. That one did 310,000 pay-per-view buys. So if you compare somewhat to what John Jones was talking about, how much he makes in one fight, considering his 800,000 pay-per-view buy numbers and stuff like that, which is about double what Anthony Pettis fights at, we'll say in pay-per-view points, maybe Pettis made around a million to two million a fight when he was a champion. I don't know if he gets the same percentage John Jones has. I don't think he would, especially as a new champion. So we'll say a million, maybe $2 million, just for argument's sake. That would automatically give him about $5 million to $7 million his entire nine-year run in the UFC, which is definitely more than making $3 million in the PFL for one year. But by making half his total money from the UFC in one year in the PFL, that's shocking. That's absolutely crazy, right? And if you include the weedy sponsorship and the other sponsorships he had when he became champion, most likely it's not going to be what he made in nine years in the UFC. But just disclose pay, it's insane that he could make the same amount of money. Do I think it's going to happen? No. But the idea is very enticing for a fighter. I mean, I wish other fighters in his state, such as, you know, Don Cerrone, many others who are capable of fighting B-level fighters and absolutely dominating them, test the free agency, go into other organizations, and just make a bunch of money. That's what they should do. But let's go right into the questions here. We're going to start with the most liked comment by Miguel Engel Flores Lopez. Where is the breakdown of Figueredo versus Moreno? I'm glad you asked. I am going to do that breakdown because we really don't have much happening in the next three weeks. It gives me a lot of time to go through many different kind of videos. I'm going to do that breakdown. I might do the breakdown of Wonderboy versus Jeff Neal. I'm going to do a video where I predict the end of 2021 champions. I'm going to do the Weasel Awards thing. If I have time, I might do the Nightmare Matchups and the Prospects of 2021. I know a lot of you guys like the Nightmare Matchups and Prospects video, but the reason why I'm saying if I have time for those is the fact that those two videos take a lot of time to do. Like when I'm doing Nightmare Matchups and Prospects videos, I'm really only focusing on that video. It really needs all my attention. It takes so much editing, so much time, so much research. I mean, the layout and the way I edit those videos is pretty much completely edited by myself. The whole detail to it is what I've pretty much come up with. So it does get pretty hard to implement and add on to those. But yes, I will do the breakdown of Figgy versus Moreno. One of the best fights I've ever seen. They're with a Tom Parker. How do you see Kevin Holland doing against the top 10 at middleweight after his impressive performance against Jacare Souza? Let us see here. So where is he ranked? He is right now number 10. Why is he number 10? He should be higher than that. It's because Jacare wasn't ranked, but that's kind of messed up. Jacare was a top 7 contender before he went up to light heavy. I actually don't remember what rank he was. So when Jacare left the division, he was actually ranked number 7. That's what should be credited here. He beat 
who was the number seven ranked middleweight in the world. And he destroyed him. So I don't like that number 10 rank, but let's go with it. Kevin Holland versus Uriah Hall. That would be an interesting fight. I think Holland would win. He has more tenacity to him. He's a bit faster on the trigger. Uriah Hall even still today has that issue where he doesn't pull the trigger when he needs to. And I think ultimately that's the downfall of Uriah Hall in that fight. Kevin Holland's younger. He's fast. He's powerful. He's longer. I believe he probably has better grappling. In case he does take it to the ground, he's going to pressure Uriah Hall for sure. I got to go with Kevin Holland. Kelvin Gastelum. That's an interesting fight because we know how Kelvin fought Israel Adesanya, who has a very similar body type to Kevin Holland. But the thing about Kelvin Gastelum is he still goes to the same kind of attacks. He makes them work, which shows somewhat of his striking fight IQ, as well as the timing in his punches. And because of that, I probably will lean to Kelvin Gastelum. Kevin, I could possibly go in for a counter double leg takedown or something like that if Kelvin rushes and leaps into his punches a bit. But I think Kelvin will find his way inside of that reach and, over, and overwhelm Holland in the infighting. You got Derek Brunson now. I will have to go with Kevin Holland this fight. I think it's a competitive one. I think Brunson's wrestling can be a bit of a deciding factor. But if he rushes in there with those punches, if he's not patient, which he has been doing pretty well lately, if he rushes in, he's going to get countered and probably knocked out. If he's patient, moves in a bit. But here's the thing as well. Kevin Holland is very good against patient fighters. He's super sharp, very precise, long punches. And I think Brunson, even from a distance, if he is patient, is going to get touched up a bit. It's going to force him to explode and he could possibly get countered because of that. Even on the ground, Holland can absolutely hang with Derek Brunson. So I'll go with Kevin Holland that one. Jack Hermanson now. This fight was supposed to happen. Jack Hermanson has better wrestling, I believe. I think he's better on the ground as well. But his striking is a bit suspect. He thinks a lot. He doesn't react too much. He will lose to Kevin Holland on the feet, 100%. He's, he'll be greatly overpowered and greatly outsped. It just comes down to can he take down Holland and win through a decision or try to get the submission win. Ah, that's a tough one, man. Kevin Holland does surprise me with his grappling every single time I see him. And he didn't look that helpless at all against Jacare Souza. I'm going to slightly go to Kevin Holland's side. Now Marvin Vittori. Okay, Kevin Holland versus Marvin Vittori is an interesting fight. I'm going to go with Vittori. I think his pressing style with his well-timed left hand will be able to find the orthodox stance Kevin Holland very well. His kicks are going to be a bit demoralizing. On the ground, he can absolutely hold his own with Kevin Holland. He can take him to the ground. He's more powerful. He's stronger. He's very, very durable. I think in most aspects of that fight, Vittori will have the advantage. Darren Till. Now we're really getting into the top echelon in this division. Right now, I'll go with Darren Till. I think Holland may surpass Till later on. But for now, I think Darren Till's footwork is going to be such a problem for Kevin Holland to grasp. I think Till's going to take the outside foot advantage, constantly land that left hand, stick on to Kevin Holland and stalk him the entire fight. Look for counter shots on those long punches, kick the legs, kick the body. Right now, it's a tough fight for Kevin Holland. Now, Jerry Kenanier. This is interesting. I think Kenanier's counter punches are going to be extremely dangerous for Kevin Holland to recklessly throw attacks, not set anything up. The leg kicks are going to be so devastating. I think the leg kicks alone are going to be a big weapon for Kananir to win this fight. Yeah, I'm going to go with Kananir. I think those leg kicks actually are a little bit too damaging. I think Holland's not going to be able to check too many of those. I think he's going to actually take him off his feet a few times. And it's going to keep him a distance for the infighting. Paulo Costa, I'm going to go with Kevin Holland. Very similar to how Adesanya was able to deal with Costa's eventual pressure. If Costa stays from a distance, he's getting picked apart. If he comes in, he's going to get countered. He's way too reckless. Robert Whitaker destroys Kevin Holland. Then Israel Adesanya. I think he beats Holland everywhere in the stand-up. I don't think Holland does anything that can really get to Adesanya. Then we go to Avant Campbell. If you could add one skill to a B-level fighter to get him to the championship level, what skill would you give them every weight class? Well, it, it depends on the fighter. So you're telling me to pick a B-level fighter from every division? What would be a B-level fighter in heavyweight? So I see where Ply say Walt Harris. Walt Harris for stamina. Yeah, that'd probably be a good one. Walt Harris, stamina, and not only that, wrestling. Um, If I have to pick one, though, one skill, 
Oh, man, that's tough. He has a lot of holes that Kevin Lee can see. I'll pick wrestling because if he goes through wrestling training and all that stuff, he is probably going to have better cardio, generally speaking. And even if he has good stamina, there are really good wrestlers in this division who will take him to the ground and hold him down there. Look what Overeem did when it, when it went to the ground. Walt Harris could not find his way back up. Curtis Blaze will do the same thing. Stevie Milchers will do the same thing. Even Surreal Gone might take him to the ground. Like, it's a big problem. Light heavyweight, so Johnny Walker would probably be a good one. Basic, fundamental, defensive boxing. That's it. If he does that, he could absolutely become a champion. As for Walt Harris, like I said before, I don't think Walt Harris will be a championship-level fighter. He can prove me wrong, but as of what I see right now, I don't think so. Middleweight... Uh, who's a B-level fighter? Maybe Uriah Hall. I would say for Uriah Hall, uh, a more tenacious mentality. That's it. It's all in his mind. If he has that down, a lot of fighters are not going to be able to beat him. Welterweight? Who's B-level at welterweight? They're all A-level. We'll say Vicente Luque. Okay, Vicente Luque has to have the ability to adapt in a fight. When you look at his fights, he's always fighting the same way. He's never changing anything up. When he's losing or winning, he keeps going with the same rhythm, same attack, same motion, and hurts him badly when he loses a fight. If he does that, he can absolutely beat a lot of these guys. Lightweight. B-level would probably be Kevin Lee. I would say for Kevin Lee, there has to be a bit of a balance in his mental state. He has the attributes. He has a lot of the skills down. It's just he doesn't know when to pull the trigger, and he doesn't know when to stop pulling the trigger, right? It's either he's aiming down the scope the whole time and not firing, or he's completely just spraying the entire octagon. Like, there has to be a balance there, and that seems to be a big hole in his own game. B-level at featherweight would probably be Shane Burgos. I would say for Shane Burgos, more emphasis on defense, right? Just overall better boxing defense. That's it. His offensive boxing is absolutely spectacular. He has good Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills. He's a big guy for the division. He just welcomes getting hit too much. He keeps his hands down, just looks to parry punches, and that's really it. And he tends not to take any step back, and that does hurt him a bit. You have to be able to step back sometimes, whether for counterpunching, just to get away from some big punch or create angle, or download data. He's never given himself enough time to download data because he's always moving forward and staying in the opponent's face, even though he has a big reach advantage over everybody in this division. If he does that, he can absolutely be a championship-level fighter. B-level at bantamweight. Man, who's B-level here? Marlon Vera. I'll say Marlon Vera because everybody looks A-level. You have to really go down to like number 13 to find the B-level fighter. For Marlon Vera, more pressure to his game. He doesn't pressure enough. He doesn't fire enough. He doesn't have this volume to him, even though he has the cardio to do it. He has the cardio to pressure opponents and put a pace on them, but he doesn't do it. He's very defensively minded, and it hurt him, especially against Josie Aldo. B-level at flyweight probably be Kai Kara France. He's a little bit too aggressive, a little bit too much brawling in his nature, and if he just puts a little bit more patience into his striking, I think he can absolutely hang with a lot of these guys. B-level women's bantamweight would probably have to be Juliana Pena. She's mostly just a grappler, mostly just a wrestler. A lot more patient striking with emphasis on the jab, I think would be a very good thing. She has long punches, but she doesn't use them too effectively. She's very frantic with her punching, and she just needs a little bit more of a calm style. B-level flyweight would probably be Cynthia Calvillo. A better offensive freestyle wrestling game, so she can always implement her Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And then strawweight. B-level would probably be Michelle Waterson. And I'll say for Michelle Waterson, also a good offensive wrestling skill. Because she's pretty good with her striking. She has really good kicks. She's getting much better with her boxing. But the only thing she's missing is that wrestling style to really put into fights her dominant Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu skills. So interesting question. And then we go to Takmaeda. How far do these rising stars go? Holland, Shemaev, Fiziev, Gan, O'Malley, anyone else I missed. The farthest I see Holland going to be honest, is like number three or number two contender. I don't think he challenges for the title. I think he loses to the number one contender and never sees that championship. As for Shemaev, 
I can see Shamayev being a superstar of the sport. I can see him being a champion of one of the divisions, middleweight or welterweight. It's a tough task, but I think that's how far I can currently see him going. I see Fiziev challenging for the title eventually. One day, he's going to be fighting for that belt, but there's a part of me that feels like he will become the champion at some point. I think Cyril Gunn will be the number one contender. I think he will lose to the champion. I think he will be a number one contender for a pretty long time, like uh, like what Robert Whitaker is currently. He will lose to the champion, but he'll beat everybody else. Sean O'Malley. Ah, this is a tricky one. Because if his mind is in the right place, I could see him becoming the bantamweight champion. And then eventually going up to featherweight. Not to win the belt, but just to fight there. But where his mind is currently at, and if it does not adapt and change and evolve, I think he's going to be that what-if fighter forever. I think he might make it to top five, maybe. But he'll always be in people's minds like one of the most talented guys that never became what people expected. Then we go to Yayit. Do you think that Tony Ferguson will move up to welterweight after this? If so, is it possible for him to beat the current top five welterweights? I don't see it out of the cards. I think he's going to have a fresh continuation of his MMA career into welterweight. I think there's going to be a lot of guys there that will fight him, and he'll be more rejuvenated. He won't have to cut so much weight. He'll bring back that knockout power that he has lost. I mean, he could still knock people out at 155, but at welterweight, if you look at the Ultimate Fighter, for an example, he had some crazy power there, man. I mean, we might even see a better Tony Ferguson at welterweight than we saw at 155, but that is only speculative because of the damage he has taken and because how worn out he already is and how old he already is. If he was a younger Tony Ferguson, he might have been better at 170 than he was at 155. But currently, can he beat top five guys? Usman, Colby, Burns, Leon Edwards, Masvidal, and Steven Thompson. He can be Jorge Masvidal and he could be Gilbert Burns. The rest of those guys beat him. And I think pretty solemnly, to be honest. I think Wonderboy runs circles around him. I think Edwards does what Gaethje did to him, but worse. I think Colby Covington takes him down and holds him down. I think Usman does the same as well. When you look at the stylistic matchups for Tony at welterweight, a lot of that does not look good for him. And then we go to Eli Baltadano. Who wins and how? Holland versus Shemaev. I'm going to go with Shemaev, but this is very difficult. I think his pressure will get past some of the long-range strikes. Holland's not the fastest guy on his feet. He's very fast with his strikes, but he's not fast at moving around. So he might fall into that pressure very early, get taken to the ground and held down, take a lot of damage from ground and pound. And, and again, that wrestling style is something a lot of Americans just do not train at all. Unless he's training for Shemaev, and he's been doing it for a pretty long time against that similar wrestling style, it's going to feel very foreign to him when he goes into the cage with him. So I'll say Shemaev by, if it's a five-round fight, which it most likely would be, I think Shemaev will only fight five-round fights for now on. I think he finishes Holland in the fourth round due to submission. TJ Dillashaw versus Sanhagen. Right now, I'm confident in Sanhagen. He's far bigger, far longer, very fast, crafty as well, tricky as well. But just the wrestling is going to be an issue. Sanhagen doesn't seem to have really good takedown defense. And DJ has some of the best takedowns I've ever seen. I mean, look what he did to a Sunsau in the rematch at UFC 200. Look at those takedowns, man. Insane. Switch stancing into trips and stuff like that, that's crazy, man. If TJ gets him down, he will probably dominate the fight. But if it stays standing, I think Sanhagen is the better striker. I think he's going to have more advantages over TJ Dillashaw. TJ is also coming off a long layoff, so that gives more of an advantage for Sanhagen. So I'll stick with Sanhagen. He's also a bit younger as well. Zabit versus Yair. The fight that's been talked about for like two years, and it's never happened yet. I mean, they put them together how many times, and, and it just keeps falling apart. I think Zabit probably wins this fight. I think Yair's cardio is his big weapon to victory. If it's a five-round fight, Yair can absolutely win this fight. But if it's three rounds, I think Zabit comfortably wins. I think the wrestling will be the deciding factor for Zabit. 
He has better boxing, better defense all around the board. They're both very tricky with their kicks, so I don't see them landing too much, but Zabit's leg kicks are going to be a big weapon against Yair. Zabit has more fundamental kicks. He has more variety to his striking than Yair does, and that is saying something. So I'll stick with Zabit. They both haven't fought in such a long time. It's crazy. Then we go to the MMA wizard. Number one, will Charles Oliveira vs. Habib be the closest thing to Tony vs. Habib, but better since Oliveira is a better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist than Habib and Tony Ferguson? And number two, is, Ter is Terrence Crawford the hardest hitting fighter in combat sports from 135 to 155? I guess Oliveira vs. Habib would be the closest thing due to how similar Oliveira can fight compared to Tony Ferguson's style, and he's a better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu artist. Far better, actually. And he seems to be a better wrestler at least MMA wrestler than Tony Ferguson. But he does bring a little bit different of a striking style to Habib. And I don't think it's going to be as... Uh as effective as Tony's striking style would have been against Habib because Oliver doesn't put that same kind of pressure. He's a sniping counterpuncher. And how many of those have we saw Habib fight? Gacy tried to fight like that. Conor tried to fight like that. Dustin Poirier tried to fight like that. They all try to fight like that, and they all lose because of it. You got to put the pressure on Habib. You got to make him back up, and that's what Tony can do. Oliver doesn't do that. Oliver will probably not be able to do that outside of the first round where Habib lets everybody pressure him. Every single fight Habib has ever been in, in recent years, should I say, in that first round, Habib has been pressured every single time, from Eli Quinta all the way to Justin Gaethje. I think Habib still beats Oliveira, but Oliveira right now poses the greatest threat to Habib's reign out of any lightweight. I understand Connor can do things, but I think on paper... You look at Oliveira's style, he has the best chance of being Habib in that division. And is Crawford the hardest hitting fighter from 135 to 155? To my knowledge, probably so. But I don't know too many boxers today. I don't watch boxing like I used to. When I say that uh, that Tyson Fury-Deontay Wilder fight ruined boxing for me, I'm not even kidding. Like, that was the fight that really killed the sport for me. I'll only watch certain fights, but I haven't seen too many other fighters in the in the welterweight or middleweight divisions in boxing. But I do think he hits harder than any 155er in the UFC, 100%. Then we go to Junior. Number one, Nightmare opponent Charles Oliveira versus Habib, who wins? I got Habib. I think he dominates. Number two, if Charles Oliveira and Gilbert Burns become champions, who wins in a super fight? I got Duke Bronx, more accurate striker, and better grappler in my opinion. I don't think you're wrong there. Burns not a big 170-er. He fought at 155 before. I don't know where they would fight. 155 could absolutely be the division because, again, Burns has fought there before, but he would cut a lot of weight to get back down there. At 155, I think Oliveira comfortably wins that fight. I think their Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu might cancel each other out a bit, but they're going to do so many things right on the ground. I think whoever's on top might have the advantage due to the ground and pound. And that comes down to who has a better wrestling. I think they're both relatively similar in wrestling as well. They have both relatively similar takedown defense. But as strikers, Gilbert Burns is more pressuring and he brawls a little bit more. He's a little bit sloppier with his punches, but definitely has more power than Charles Oliveira. Oliveira is sharper and faster and longer and seems to be similarly athletic. I think it's such an even fight. That fight would be insane, man. So at 155, I got Oliveira. At 170, because Oliveira is such a big fighter now, look how big he looked against Tony Ferguson. I think he can go up to 170 pretty comfortably and fight Burns. Crazy to think that he fought at 145 and one time made 143. But at 170, I'm going to have to go with Burns, but very slightly. I think overall, Oliveira might be a little bit better of a fighter. Then we'll go to Ben Barr. Fantasy matchup, Henry Cejudo versus Anthony Joshua in an MMA fight. Oh, that is hilarious. Joshua's more powerful. He's far bigger. He's like double the size of Cejudo, and it's barely exaggerating. Cejudo is the better fighter. Okay, we all know that. I might lean Henry Cejudo. People, people cannot overlook how helpless someone is who doesn't know wrestling, who's trying to stop a takedown, no matter their size. They just try to overpower it and all that. People probably point to, look what Bob Sapp did to Noguera. Bob Sapp was barely a fighter, and he was far bigger than Noguera. Noguera shot in the takedown. Bob Sapp sprawled, and 
Sap just lifted him and slammed him. The thing you have to take note is, Sohudo is far better at wrestling than Nogueira ever was. Nogueira is not even a wrestler, right? Nogueira is a person in Jitsu who knows some takedowns, but he shot in, got on his knees right away, didn't even drive or anything, didn't even try to chain wrestle or anything. He just shot in and laid under Bob Sapp. That's not what Sahuda would do. Sahuda knows an infinite amount of techniques to get out of someone sprawling on top of them. And that's not even the takedown you want to use against bigger guys. You want to usually go to the single leg takedown or ankle pick them or something like that. Take them off their balance one step at a time. If you try to just blast through their hips and blast through their bigger body with a with a blast double leg, that's going to be harder to do. But Sue will probably, most likely, take down Anthony Joshua, get his neck, get his back, something very quick before Joshua can get back up to his feet. Joshua's way, way slower, doesn't understand the grappling at all. He's going to fall into traps. Sue could probably get his neck, and that's the end of the fight. It is pretty hard to fathom such a small guy like Cejudo beating someone as big as Anthony Joshua. But man, you could just search up many videos of small people beating bigger people. You can see small women choking out big, stronger guys all over the place. You could literally see this happening. The fight could literally last for 30 seconds. That's very possible. If Cejudo gets a hold of that neck at any point of the fight, that fight's over. Yes, if Joshua lands a big punch, the fight is over. But here's the difference, man. Joshua, even though he's so much bigger, doesn't know about kicks, doesn't know about wrestling, doesn't know about that different kind of distance that MMA fighters fight at, doesn't know about the different kind of feints and fakes that MMA fighters use, right? Cejudo's way, way faster. He can land a bunch of light kicks from a distance before Joshua realizes the damage that has accumulated. Now he can't move the same and it's easier to take him to the ground. All Cejudo has to do is play cat and mouse. Get in, get a couple light kicks, get out. Get in, go for a takedown after a feint up high or something like that to trick Anthony Joshua, which he will 100% fall for. Attempt to take him to the ground due to the single leg, chaining a bunch of things up. He doesn't have to get Joshua on his back with that takedown. He just needs to get him off balance. That's it. If he gets him off balance, there's many opportunities for him to get the back or get the neck. If Joshua just gets on one knee, this fight could be done. If he just lowers his head enough, the fight could be done. So I'll go with Henry Cejudo. And then last question goes to Golden Duck 6. Breakdown of the future of all the undefeated prospects losing their O, Edmund, O'Malley, Macy, Costa, etc. I can see Edmund making some intelligent fixes to his game and actually coming back to be a contender of the middleweight division. I touched on Sean O'Malley where it depends where his mental state is going to be at. If he is mentally undefeated like he's been saying, I think he might lose in a few fights again and be that what-if fighter. I think Macy Barber is going to be a contender of the flyweight division, which is pretty shallow. So it's not really saying too much, but I do see her being competitive with the other contenders in the division. She might fight for the belt much, much later in her career. And as for Paulo Costa, I honestly do not think he's going to have a bright future. There's a few fighters he could do stuff against. Maybe Jarek Hananier, maybe Marvin Vittori. Maybe Jack Hermanson, maybe Derek Brunson. There are guys in this division that he can absolutely perform very well against. But I don't see him ever becoming the champion. I don't see him probably even ever fighting for the belt again. His style, again, like I said before, is a bit too reckless for some of the sharper strikers of this division. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. Um, Due to the holidays and stuff like that, I had to cut this a little bit short. I have a bunch of plans for this week as well as next week, so... I apologize for that. The next time is going to be for sure an hour long, if not even more. So again, Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.